It's from Luke 19, 11 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, uh, came before him, saying, Lord, your mina, has, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And he said, and they said to him, Lord, uh, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But f- I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has, he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, give us um, hearts that are willing to receive your word this morning, that are eagerly listening to the still, small whisper of your spirit, speaking to our souls what we need. Lord, may the messenger recede into the background, and Christ, may you be central. We ask this in your holy and majestic and beautiful name. Amen. I'm guessing all of us have received advice at some point or other in our lives that stuck with us. Could have been advice we got decades ago, but for whatever reason, we remember it, and uh, we remember that advice, and it still helps us. There's a good chance it was before a big change in your life or a big transition. Um, So for me, for instance, when I went off to college, I remembered some advice given to me by a high school teacher who said, Mike, treat college like a nine-to-five job. So when you get there, just like when you get a nine-to-five job or an eight-to-five job, during that eight-to-five period, you're not playing video games, you're not sleeping in, you're working. So even if you have a class, even if your classes don't start till 1 p.m., don't sleep until noon, wake up at eight, and work eight to five, and then what is outside of that is your time. That was good advice. It stuck with me. It's not, you know, life transformative advice, but it's just, it stuck with me 20 years later. 
On a, on a bit more serious note, when I asked Mariko's dad for his blessing to marry Mariko, I also asked him for advice because he and Mariko's mom have been married for over 35 years. They have a wonderful marriage, and I knew I was getting myself way in over my head, and so I, I wanted his advice. And to give you some background to his advice, Mariko's dad works in medicine. He's, um, he, he's retired now, but he was the, the head of his department. And so he did a lot of administrative stuff, working with other employees. And he had had multiple coworkers have affairs with other coworkers that led to like really ugly divorce um, where you're you know, working with your divorcee now. And so he just had seen some ugly stuff go down. And so he told me, Mike, don't forget how you feel about Mariko right now. Remember this, and in 20 years, remember what you're feeling right now. And it's just, it's stuck with me. It's, 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 it's uh, kind of um, similar to what Proverbs 5.18 gets at, where it says, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Remember how you feel about her in 20 years. And it's stuck with me. I'm guessing if we went around the room... Every single one of us would have a piece of advice that they remember that's just stuck with them. Again, in this room, it could be decades old, but it's just stuck with you. Now, Jesus is preparing his disciples, likewise, for a big transition, a big season change in their lives, but the Lord of life doesn't give advice, right? Advice is what one mortal who's finite, who makes mistakes, offers to another mortal who's finite and makes mistakes, and it's like, in my experience, this has worked, but when the Lord of life speaks, it's not advice, but it's truth, and wisdom. And Jesus is very much preparing the disciples for his own death and resurrection. Again, they're about to enter Jerusalem, and so he gives them sober wisdom for the disciples and for us as the church about the long wait that we will have for the return of Jesus. To give you the outline for this morning where we're going, first point is going to be adjusting expectations. Second is going to be warning against complacency. And third is remembering the character of God. So again, um, just a context of where we are in Luke's, someone at one time or other called the Gospels a passion narrative with a long introduction. Um, It's not the best, most helpful description because it treats all that happens up till the crucifixion of Christ as secondary, unimportant. But the point is that all of this is moving towards the crucifixion. That's the climax of the Gospels. It's the climax of the Bible. And here we are, Jesus' last teaching before he enters Jerusalem, when everything starts moving very quickly towards the cross. And the last teaching that Jesus gives as he's about to enter Jerusalem is a sober teaching that brings with it a warning and brings with it judgment. So let's go ahead and look at verses 11 to 14. And as I heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately And so he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them minas and said, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So right away, we're given the reason for this teaching. It's because the disciples think the kingdom of God is going to come immediately. They're expecting Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. He's going to claim his throne. He's going to deliver Israel from their Roman overlords, and he's going to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. That's what they're expecting, which, again, helps us understand why, just a couple 
uh, Sundays ago when we looked at Jesus' foretelling of his crucifixion, why they couldn't understand that. Not that they couldn't understand the words death, but in their mind, how could that possibly fit into what Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do? And so he gives this parable to both correct and misunderstanding, but then also to prepare them for what they don't realize is going to be a long wait until Christ does come back to bring his kingdom in full. And so we get this parable. Now, to, to, to kind of set up this parable with these first four verses, to get some historical background, it says this nobleman went on a long journey to receive a kingdom. That may seem kind of strange, but in the Roman Empire, it was common for local warlords or noblemen to go to Rome to receive from the Caesar, the Roman emperor, uh, a kingdom. It was fairly common. In fact, there's a specific story that might be in the background here where Archelaus, who is the son of Herod the Great, he was the king when Jesus was born, the one who murdered all the babies in Bethlehem. Well, his son Archelaus was even worse than Herod the Great. He was a vicious, brutal dictator. And in fact, in, 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 in the Gospels, when it says that Joseph and Mary and Jesus come back from Egypt when Jesus is a baby, it says Arch, when Joseph found out Archelaus was ruling in Judea, he went to Galilee instead. That's how Jesus ended up in Galilee, because this was such a bad dude. So Archelaus went to Rome to ask for his father's kingdom. And the Jews hated him so much that they sent a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders to argue against it. Does that sound like anything? Yes. Well, so maybe that's in the background. Maybe not. We don't know. The point is, a, a ruler going away to Rome in order to receive a kingdom, it would have been a common thing in this time. And it says he goes on a long journey. Again, he's traveling to Rome and back before the days of airplane and, 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 and you know, cars. Probably would have been about a two-month journey, round trip. But then you also have the time in Rome where you're trying to set up a meeting with the emperor. I have no idea how long that takes. Maybe a month, two, three, who knows. And then seasons affected travel. It's by boat. You can't uh, sail in certain seasons because the weather's too dangerous. So this is a journey that would have been minimum three months, maybe six, nine, 12 months. So it's a long journey. This is not just a short vacation. And in here we see Jesus giving some teachings on the kingdom of God. He's correcting some misunderstandings. And the first teaching that he's giving here is that the kingdom of God has two phases. The kingdom of God has two phases. He's telling them he's going he's gonna to have to... So again, so in this parable, it's an allegory. Jesus is supposed to be the king, who, the nobleman who goes away and receives the kingdom. And he's telling them, look, it, there's going to there's gonna be a pause, a waiting time, where Jesus is going to leave before he comes back. The disciples are going to have to wait. The kingdom of God is, has come in Jesus, and in the person of Christ, the kingdom of God has come, but there's going to be two phases to this. And in between those two phases, there's going to be a long period of waiting. Because again, the disciples are thinking the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to receive his throne. He's going to receive his kingdom. So Jesus is preparing them, no, this first phase of the kingdom is about the suffering servant who came to give his life for the ransom of many. And there's going to be this long waiting period, and then Christ will come in power. And you're going to have to endure through that waiting period. We want to give the disciples some credit, though, or at least some slack, because when you read the Old Testament, it's not clear that the kingdom of God would have two phases. You look at the book of Isaiah, and you have prophecies about the suffering servant who would bear the sins of many, right next to prophecies about the, the, the fulfillment of the kingdom and, and, and God dwelling among humanity. And, and, and they look like they're the same event. 
But one way to think about Old Testament prophecies is kind of like how um, you think about taking a photo. If you want to go and put that photo of the Eiffel Tower up, um, there's like a million pictures of the Eiffel Tower, any large landmark you want to think of, where if you angle it just right, it can look like either you're holding it in your hand or like you're as tall as it. And of course, we know the Eiffel Tower is huge, so we know that it's not being held in his hand, right? But at, at first glance, it looks like they're right next to each other. It looks like you're literally holding the Eiffel Tower. But there's actually a massive, dif- a massive distance between the hand and the Eiffel Tower. And that's how the Old Testament prophecies work. There's this first phase of the kingdom, the suffering servant of Jesus, who's come to die on a cross and bear the sins. And it looks like right next comes a fulfillment of the kingdom, but there's not. There's a long waiting period. The kingdom of God has two phases. That's the first teaching that Jesus is teaching his disciples. But the second is that the kingdom of God, in this period of waiting, will face opposition. Again, look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So again, the disciples, they're, they're, they think their ship has arrived. Like they're coming to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to receive his kingdom. They're going to be like his first lieutenants. And instead, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Not only is there going to be a long period of waiting, but there's going to be fierce opposition. People who hate the Lord you serve. So you have to be ready for that. Not victory and power, but waiting and hostility. This is our first point. Adjusting expectations for what's coming ahead. Second point, and this is the kind of meat of this parable, is warning against complacency. Let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 27 again. Now, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him, saying, Lord, your, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, and you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Well, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So as this nobleman heads off, he gives tasks to his servants. You've got to imagine if you're going on a six to nine month journey, there are things you need to be taken care of. You need your house to be cared for. You need to maybe turn your water off. You probably want someone to stop in. Well, if you're a nobleman and you have estate lands, you likewise have things that need to be taken care of. So he gives tasks to these servants to, 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 to engage in while he's gone. Literally, he tells them, um, make a profit with this amina. Engage in business. Make a profit with it. And so we see the first two servants. The first one comes back, and he's made a tenfold profit. You give me one mina, I have ten. 
That's impressive. Now let's, let's pause for a second because minas don't mean anything to us. How much would it be in dollars? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to, 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 you know, the exchange rate is not that clear, but a mina would have been three months worth of wage for the, the basic field laborer. So the way I've tried to make sense of this is, okay, so we look at the minimum wage in Kentucky at 725. If you had some working 50 hours a week making 725, in three months, they'd make around four to $5,000. So he's given each of them about $5,000. So here this first servant says, you give me 5,000, well, I've made 50,000 out of it. That's really good, that's impressive. And the second servant as well, he makes a five-fold profit. You gave me $5,000, I make $25,000. Now, what I want to point out from these first two servants and what the emphasis is, the main feature that's emphasized here is how the servants are rewarded far beyond what they deserve. Here, the first servant comes back and says, look, I made 50 grand. And then he says, okay, well, now you can be basically the mayor of 10 cities. That's not like, those don't equal out, okay? Think about it this way, okay? So if you're like, Given administrative control over 10 cities. That's like being a governor of the state of Kentucky. Okay, so our current governor, Bashir, he's up for re-election in 2023. We can imagine that there will be numerous candidates, and they'll all be making a case for why we should vote for them, why they deserve to be governor of Kentucky. If there was a candidate who said, hey, one time I went into a business venture, I began with 5000 and I made $45,000. It's like, I'm sorry, but when you're dealing with the state of a $30 billion budget, that's not that impressive. And if that's your only qualification, you're going to be laughed out of the race. It would be ridiculous. But that's what this king does. This, this first servant makes a tenfold increase, and so he gives him ten cities. The returning king is lavish, extravagant with his rewards. You might even say irresponsibly generous and how he treats his servants. And that's really important to keep in mind as we now move to the third servant. And again, this is really where the weight of the parable is, is on this third servant and how he responds. So the first two, they do great, and the king just gives them lavish, extravagant rewards. And then we get to this third servant in verses 20 to 21. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, and you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. This servant basically took the money and did the equivalent of hiding it in his mattress. And his reasoning is this. He says, you're a severe man. What he's saying is you're, you're, you're a, a kind of Scrooge-like figure who's always grasping at more, who has unrealistic expectations. And so I know if I work hard and I try to make a profit, you're just going to take it when you come back. And likewise, if I work hard and make investments and take risks and lose it, you're going to hold me accountable as well. You put me in a lose-lose situation, so here's your money. That's what the servant is saying. The only problem, which we've just seen, is that he completely misunderstood his master's character. That's a giant problem with this. He's, he's saying, you're the Scrooge-like character, but the king has come back and shown that he is lavish with his generosity, irresponsibly lavish towards his servants. This servant completely misunderstood the heart of his king, the heart of his lord. I'm a firm believer in what you'd call a big God theology, a theology that 
that focuses on God's glory, on his holiness, on his majesty. And, and, and I believe that because I believe that's what the Bible emphasizes over and over and over again. God is creator. God is holy. But there can be a tendency with people who hold to a big God theology to emphasize God's holiness and his greatness and his power at the expense of his extravagant love at the expense of his mercy and compassion. And when we're looking at God and who he is, there's a paradox here. A paradox is a seeming contradiction that really is not a contradiction. There seems to be a paradox between God's majesty and his holiness and his glory and this extravagant generosity and love. And we don't like tension. We want things simple and clear and very obvious, and so we try to either minimize God's holiness and maximize his love, or we minimize his love and maximize his holiness. And we just have to hold both and be okay with the tension, as uncomfortable as it is. As we believe in a big God who is holy and majestic and worthy of all our worship, and yet is extravagantly generous, extravagantly compassionate and loving towards us, his people. If we don't hold the both, again, from my, as someone who leans, who, who, who is very committed to a big God theology, if I'm not willing to hold that in balance, I'm left with a father who doesn't really love me, but just tolerates me because Jesus makes him. And that's just an abomination of what the Bible teaches. So again, let's believe in a big God, but also believe in God's genuine and extravagant love. This servant misses his master's character. He misunderstands his master, but there's a there's an additional complexity in this parable. And this is why this parable is notoriously difficult to understand. Because look at verses 22 to 23. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Here's what he does. He's like, okay, let's assume your characterization of me is correct. Let's assume that I am this severe, Scrooge-like, you know, man who has unrealistic expectations. If that were the case, your actions still would not make sense. If I am who you are saying I am, then you would know not having any profit is not an option. And you would have at least put it in the bank. So you would have had interest to give to your returning king, and it would not have put you at any risk or at any labor. At the very least, you should have done that, if what you're saying is true. So here's where it gets really complex. The question is, is this man truly misunderstanding his master, or is he just lazy? It's not clear. But I think the point is, it's probably both. I think he genuinely misunderstands the heart of his master, but I think when his master shows up, again, the servant has this air, what he thinks is an airtight case when his, when his Lord returns. He says, you gave me a lose-lose situation. It's your fault. You're the problem. And he actually did have a misunderstanding of his Lord, but what his Lord reveals is that there were other things going on. I think what he's illustrating is what we see in Romans 3.19. Where Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. When Christ returns, there will be no one who has an airtight justification, defense of their sin. Every mouth will be silenced. Everyone held accountable. 
There's a famous atheist named Bertrand Russell who lived about 100 years ago. He was a philosopher, very clever. And he was one time asked what he would do if he died and realized he was wrong. And God asked him, Bertrand, why did you believe in me? And Bertrand Russell quipped, I would say, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Which is a very clever response. It's also a very foolish response. The sinful heart thinks that when it stands before the God of the universe, it'll be able to justify itself. What we're seeing is here is that every mouth will be stopped because the heart will be revealed for what's in it. And so this is the warning. This is the meat of this parable. The warning for us is that there are two different ways to miss the kingdom of God. The first is the obvious way, outright rejection, hatred of God. This is what we see in verse 14 with a delegation of citizens who say, we don't want this man reigning over us, the people who shake their fist at God like this Bertrand Russell. And the point of verse 27 where he says, bring these enemies of mine and slaughter them before me. No matter how great the opposition against the kingdom of God, it will fail. The delegation that went to argue against the, ma- the noblemen receiving the kingdom, they failed. Everything that is arrayed against the advance of the kingdom of God, it won't work. It'll fail. That's the first and obvious way to miss the kingdom of God is outright opposition and hostility. But the second way is kind of through a Christian nominalism, which means a Christianity in name only. Again, this servant who misses it, he seemed to be on the inside, right? He's a servant of his noblemen. From the outside, it would look like he's one of the king's men. But it comes out that this servant never knew his king. He worked for him, he served him, but he never knew him. He thought he knew him, but he didn't. And it was revealed at the end. And that's the warning for us. And this is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament, that there will be some, even within the church, who when Christ comes back will find that they never knew him. And what's really disturbing is that they won't even know that they did not know Christ. Now this isn't, this isn't meant to panic us as if we're falling into this kind of morbid introspection and we're looking at every part of our heart and well, I, this desire is less than what God wants and I, maybe I'm not really the Lord. The point isn't to make us do that. The point is to keep us from complacency, a kind of just trivializing the mercy and the grace of God like, yeah, God will forgive me. It's his job. That's what is to keep us from this complacency. It's a warning against complacency because at the end of the day, to receive the grace of God, it changes us. It can't help but change us. When we, reser- when we actually receive the grace of God as a gift, the mercy of God, and it takes hold of us as sinners who deserve death, it changes us. And if we're not changed, that's probably evidence that we've never received the grace in the first place. But this is a sober... This is a sober parable. It's a, it's a warning. And this is how Jesus enters Jerusalem in this note of judgment and warning. But I don't want to leave us on this note because it's not the note that the Bible leaves us on, even though this is how the story ends. But again, we can step back and look at the whole picture. And so the note I want us to leave on is remembering the character of God. And this is what I want us to remember, is that the third servant was wrong. 
He said, you're a severe man. You take what you did not plant. You reap what you did not sow. You're overly expect. You, you, you have unrealistic expectations. You're harsh. He was wrong. He didn't get God's heart right. He misunderstood his master. If we walk away from this parable just viewing God as a severe taskmaster who's waiting for us to miss it so he can smack us, then we're, we're, just, we're missing it. The third servant was wrong. Jesus is not a severe taskmaster. And I don't want to commit Trinitarian heresy here, but Jesus loves us with the love of a father. Yes, he's not the father, but as we just confessed in the Athanasian Creed what the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. As God, Jesus loves us with the love of a Father. And so James, my one-year-old, he started walking two weeks ago. Um, he's my third, and he took the longest to walk. Caleb was really early. Addie was a little bit later. And then James, James just, you know, he's very cautious. And he's like, why would I walk when I can crawl? And so he just took his time but a week ago, he started walking, and, and Mark and I saw the first steps. We're in the living room, and he's holding on to um, the coffee table, and then literally he just walks across the room to Marco. It's like six steps, which is un unusual. He usually starts with one step, but he just, again, he's so late, he's just like, well, I'm just going to walk across the room. And when Mark and I saw this, we like, God, like, oh my word, he just walked. He just walked. Yay, James, yay, good job. We're so excited for him. What he did wasn't very impressive. <laughs> in fact, he was delayed. He was, he was technically delayed. Like, at that age, like, he should have been walking. He didn't break any records. I don't think he's going to be a D1 track athlete. But we were so happy for him, and it wasn't put on. Like, we were rejoicing in him. That's the love of a father. That's how Christ will respond when we see him overjoyed at even our faltering steps, even our, 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 our halfway obedience and faithfulness, because he's our daddy. And that's what daddies do. Remember who the Jesus is who will welcome us home. And this is so important because we've been waiting a long time, and we may be waiting much longer. And the road ahead of us is going to involve all kinds of valleys and storms and grief but remember who the Lord is who's waiting for us. So don't give up. Don't fall asleep. Don't stop. You can't imagine the joy of our Lord when we finally persevere to the end. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we will, I pray that we will persevere I thank you that you've given us teachings and warnings and encouragements to know that this waiting is not unusual, but you told us this is how it was going to be. May we persevere with joy. May we know you. Lord, may we know your heart of your extravagant love, your extravagant generosity towards us. May that Uphold us throughout our week, no matter what may come, no matter what hardship may strike us this week or this month or this year. May that basic conviction of your delight in us because Christ has washed us clean and you have made us your own. 
May that strengthen us and uphold us. We pray this in your holy and matchless name. Amen.